This episode of Medic Mindset is supported by iSimulate. From the very beginnings of this podcast, I've been committed to keeping Medic Mindset always and forever free. Their support allows me to do that. Thank you, iSimulate. And I still work on an ambulance. I still work PRN for Powell County Ambulance, and I don't find ambulance work attractive, right? It's a grind. I find certain patient interactions attractive and, and exciting and fulfilling. I find certain kinds of calls and certain aspects of it. I like the camaraderie. I, I like what it demands of me. I like that every call that I go on, I have to essentially be the best version of myself. I like that. I like what EMS requires of me. This is about having a vision. This is about a steady course. This is about not getting you know, distracted by naysayers and by people who don't support the vision. It's about getting to the black. Again, I'm saying here not every paramedic needs a degree. We do not have to require every single paramedic. You don't have to complete an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree to be able to be an NRP, to be able to be a paramedic. I no longer believe that that is necessary or even wise. But if we're going to sort of pull out of this tailspin that we're in, we need to have some level of paramedic who is a practitioner, who uh, has an advanced degree in a corresponding scope of practice. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. In January of 2019, I released an episode entitled Shock the System. In that episode, a panel at the National Association of EMS Physicians asked themselves, should degrees be required for all paramedics in the future? Now, fast forward several years, and this episode today brings the keynote session from the 2022 National Association of EMS Educators Symposium, where paramedic and EMS educator David Pfeiffer tells us it's time to leave that debate behind in order to move forward. In his customary pragmatic style, David outlines a pathway to help us find our way out of this crisis EMS seems to be experiencing in education, recruitment, retention, reimbursement. The week before this keynote, I actually texted David to see if this talk was even going to happen. You see, there were devastating floods in Kentucky, and he was literally in a helicopter working with a crew, hoisting people out of the flooded area days before he was set to speak. You'll hear him reference this and a way you can help support those affected. I've linked to the website he mentions in the show notes at medicmindset.com. I want to send a special thank you to the National Association of EMS Educators for allowing this keynote to be recorded and distributed for you to hear. I also want to mention that the great folks at Prodigy EMS were there at NIMSI to capture this audio. As you may know, Prodigy provides the mechanism for Medic Mindset listeners to get CE for listening to things like the Thinking Series. They flew with their gear to Louisville, they mic'd David up, immediately sent the audio file, and asked for nothing in return. It's why I picked them as a partner and why you are hearing this, like every Medic Mindset episode, always and forever free. Listen in to David's talk. Ladies and gentlemen, David Feinberg. Thanks. What I want to talk to you about this morning is a pathway that I think uh, we can follow to deal with some of the things that seem to be vexing us in EMS. 
Hopefully this is not news to you, (laughs) that we have a little bit of a crisis in our profession. People are defining this crisis, I think, along different terms, recruitment, retention, education, financial compensation, reimbursement for services. But it's all kind of wrapped up to this inflection point that we seem to be at here in 2022. What I'm going to propose this morning, uh, I don't necessarily think is a silver bullet. I don't think it's a panacea, but I think it is probably our best shot at... uh, finding our way out of this. The other thing that I think is important uh, to share with you before we get started is um, what I'm not. And what I mean by that is I think we have a tendency in EMS to hold ourselves out as experts in things that we are in fact not experts in, and we don't always disclose that to our audience. So I am responsible for teaching surgical crikes to our paramedic students at EKU. I've never done a surgical crike on a real person. I've done on cadavers. Um, But I've never done a surgical crike, despite the fact that I have to teach surgical crikes. And so it's important to me that I tell my students, I've never actually had to do this on a real person in my career. It's also important to me that I tell students, I'm not an expert in OBGYN, even though I have to teach that as a part of our curriculum. I'm not an expert in a lot of different things. What I may be an expert in is conveying information in a manner that is uh, effective. Maybe I'm an expert in in education. But mostly, I've just been fortunate in my career to sort of uh, be at the table or be in the room for a lot of different kinds of conversations, sort of see the nexus between a few different things. I serve on NEMSAC as the nationwide representative of providers. I serve on several committees and task forces here in Kentucky and have been um, a part of some national task forces and, and efforts like that. I'm able to sort of rub shoulders, I guess, with a lot of people who are policymakers. Lately here in Kentucky, I've also been involved in some legislative efforts to maybe try to reform EMS. And so what I'm going to share with you this morning is basically just my belief about what we should be doing based on sort of the tea leaves, I guess, that I sort of see circulating. Now, before we really get into the meat and potatoes of the presentation, I want to call your attention to the floods again. This really is a pretty devastating disaster. As was mentioned in my bio, uh, I'm a member of the National Disaster Medical System, the DMAT teams and everything, and I've responded to a lot of different floods, a lot of different uh, hurricanes and so forth. Uh, And this is probably among the worst ones that I've seen, not necessarily in the geographic magnitude. Quite frankly, there's not a whole lot in eastern Kentucky to be destroyed, unfortunately. But that's actually what part is part of what makes this disaster especially devastating. This is a part of the country in eastern Kentucky that does not have a lot to begin with. Flying over, you know, hollers, as we call them here in Kentucky, these little pockets in the mountains where there's maybe 30, 40 residences, and they're all destroyed. They're turned into splinters. Mobile homes lifted clear off their foundation and suspended in the trees as the water was receding. That's a huge disaster for those people. This is a part of the country where if you don't have a vehicle, you don't really have a job because the pockets of you know, communities and businesses and so forth are spread out. And there's no mass transit, there's no buses, there's no subway systems, and families are sharing one vehicle to get to their jobs that is now destroyed. It doesn't, it doesn't exist anymore. It floated away. 
The state of Kentucky has set up a uh, relief fund. There's a lot of people doing uh, good work to try to help Eastern Kentucky right now. There's many fine organizations you can donate to, but the governor's office has set up the uh, Eastern Kentucky Flood Relief Fund. And you can scan that QR code and it'll, uh, within a couple of clicks, I guess, take you to a secure donation website. You can make a tax-deductible donation if you have an extra 20 or 30 bucks and maybe the spirit of generosity uh, this weekend consider maybe making that donation. Just like probably every other state in the country at this point, we definitely have our share of political nonsense here in Kentucky, but knowing a few of the people involved in how these particular funds get administered, I'm pretty confident that they'll uh, get to the right place for these people, so consider that. Let me uh, take you back in time a little bit. This is Man Gulch in Montana's Helena National Forest. This beautiful canyon, it's about five miles long, cuts through uh, cliffs and stunning wilderness in an area uh, known as the Gates of the Mountains out there in Helena, Montana. But this is how Man Gulch looked on August 5th, 1949. About a 100-degree day, and a forest fire lookout spotted some smoke um, off in the distance. Actually began fighting this fire by himself out there with hand tools, while he called it in and while smoke jumpers from Missoula were mobilized. Eventually, this guy shows up with his smoke jumper crew. This is a guy named Wag Dodge, Wagner Dodge. I went by Wag. Shortly after Wag's crew got to work fighting this fire, they were basically overcome by the fire. The winds whipped it up, started to surround them, and they were surrounded by these flames on all sides. Um, except for a very steep and narrow climb up the closest ridge. At that point in firefighting, the wildland firefighting, the thing that you did was follow the path out of the flames, right? Climb up that ridge. But Wag Dodge sort of realized in that moment that that was maybe not such a great idea because of the nature of flames. Flames rise and heat rises. So trying to outrun those flames is, you know, maybe not the thing to do. And so instead, he told his crew to basically run through the flames in the opposite direction, run through the flames behind them into an area known as the black. So they could retreat into the area that had already been burnt over. But it did require risking crossing back through the flames just momentarily and facing the fire that was actually encroaching on them to get to that safe area. And this has since become wildland firefighting doctrine here in Kentucky. If you become a a firefighter, you learn about this as part of the basic firefighter training about how to uh, seek refuge in the black. And this has become a doctrine and standard practice for wildland fire service crews uh, really all over the world, invented by Wag Dodge, the Mangold Fire in 1949. And then this gave rise to a very similar concept in wildland firefighting called escape fires, lighting an escape fire. Wildland fire crews can potentially ignite their own secondary fire to create a safe haven of black to find refuge in. So we have a little bit of a fire burning, I think, in in EMS right now. I think that everybody knows what I'm talking about, but it's worth still putting these things into perspective. I'm going to commit the cardinal sin, starting at this point in the presentation to the end of the presentation, of reading the slides, because I'm wearing a secondary microphone here recording for a podcast. 
that is going to be broadcast, and um, those listeners are not going to have a damn clue what I'm talking about unless I read some things off the slide. So forgive me, um, but uh, let's really put this into sharp relief about what we're facing here. Are you familiar with the Fitch & Associates Industry Trend Report that has been going on for a few years now? It gets published, I believe, in EMS World Magazine. Yep. Fitch & Associates in 2019 um, uh, found, found this. And this is when I have to start reading slides for the benefit of future podcast listeners. 25% of private EMS employees were planning to leave their employer within one year in 2019. 56% of agencies were struggling to find quality recruits. In 2019, fewer providers were optimistic about the future of EMS um, that year than ever before. About a third or so, uh, give or take, uh, felt burnt out and frustrated at work. And then this is the one that really breaks my heart. This was um, 40% in 2019 would not have recommended this career to young people. And this is uh, especially heartbreaking to me because I got started in EMS as a teenager. I actually started volunteering because I had to do uh, middle school volunteer hours for the uh, National EMS Memorial Foundation Museum, which was then in Roanoke, Virginia, where I grew up. And then I became an EMT in high school when I was 16 in Virginia, and I've stuck with it you know, ever since. And so that was pretty heartbreaking to read. And of course, this was, this was all pre-pandemic. So it's probably true that the pandemic has exacerbated a lot of these issues, no question, but this has been building for years, right? This is not something that's just happened in the past couple of years. This is not something um, that uh, was produced by the pandemic. This is um, uh, something that's been going on for, for a while. And previous surveys really kind of bore this out. So National Registry used to do a study called LEADS, uh, the Longitudinal EMT Attributes and Demographic Study. And the last time they ran it was 2017. And so a couple of years uh, before that, that Fitch study, uh, National Registry found that 44.2% of EMS providers leave due to a lack of opportunities to advance. And I think that probably resonates with a lot of us. There's probably some people in this room who have gotten onto the educational track because they were frustrated basically doing the exact same thing day after day every day on the ambulance. If you work for a large agency, maybe there's opportunities to get promoted and gain rank, especially in a fire-based EMS model. Maybe there's opportunities to get detailed over to the training academy or get into one thing or the other. But for a lot of EMS providers, you know, it's Groundhog Day every day on the ambulance for their whole career. And the same lead study found that 65% of EMS providers who leave the profession do so to pursue higher education. So, you know, I think some buzz started on social media around my speech this morning that I was going to maybe be uh, poking some hornet's nests and maybe telling people some things they didn't want to hear. Here's something that maybe some people in this room don't want to hear. If you're a member of one of the camps who has said that uh, EMS providers really don't want higher education because uh, if that was true, they would have just gone to PA school or nursing school to begin with, you're wrong. Paramedics do value higher education. They do want to continue their education. And if you're not providing them those opportunities to do so, you're not working in the best interests of your workforce that you're supposed to be trying to support. Now let's get back to modern day here. This is the American Ambulance Association's 2022 study. These statistics are not necessarily as compelling because uh, I think this was uh, probably because this was a segment of the EMS industry, the private EMS industry. 
But you still see that these trends show up here even in 2022 as we get out of the pandemic. The biggest one by far in that private sector, probably unsurprisingly, is dissatisfaction with, well, not, not the biggest, but um, the two biggest ones, dissatisfaction with pay and benefits. And then again, we see kind of a career or occupation change. So in other words, kind of moving, moving on. I think that that is closely related to the desire for higher education, right? Because everybody here kind of knows the, it's almost a trope at this point, right? Um, I'm going to leave EMS, I'm going to do what? going to go to nursing school, or I'm going to go to PA school, or I'm going to, you know, continue in healthcare because I like helping people, I like serving people, and I like taking care of patients, but I don't like doing it in EMS anymore. So I think that when we see leaving for higher education, leaving for lack of career advancement opportunities, basically a change in occupation, I think that probably what we're seeing here is people jumping ship from the ambulance, basically to go work in a hospital. Uh, we see some other things that are nothing to sneeze at statistically. 17% going to school, that kind of you know, tracks with that desire for higher education. In this particular study, obviously, 17% is, is a lot less than the 65% that National Registry found, but it's still pretty statistically significant, to say the least. And potentially what this means is that people were able to continue going to school while continuing to work as a paramedic, so maybe they didn't have to leave their paramedic position just to continue their education. You know, I think this essentially tracks uh, with all of those prior studies. And then this just came out, started making the rounds on Twitter uh, in the context of the great uh, resignation. Uh, McKinsey and Company is a, uh, you know, sort of like an HR consulting firm. And these are the top reasons of basically the entire workforce of the United States that they surveyed, quite a bit, uh, quite a large sample size, really, of close to 14,000 people. The number one reason that basically anybody is leaving a job these days is lack of career development and advancement, right? This all centers back to, you know, people uh, leaving this profession because they don't, leaving professions in general, I think leaving jobs because they don't see an opportunity to, to grow. They don't see an opportunity to really be their best selves, if you will. You know, we do see problems with salary come up on these surveys. That's not surprising. And something that frustrates me a little bit, and this is another potential poking of a bear for some people maybe, is that I don't think that salary and compensation is not important to address. Of course it is. It's just that of course it is. So it's kind of not worth, in my opinion, talking about so much. Like, Obviously, people need to be compensated appropriately for the work that they do, and they need to be able to afford their bills and to give their children a good you know, life and to do whatever they want to do. That is, it almost goes without saying. So I see this conversation playing out all the time, uh, especially through the social media places uh, where EMS lives, uh, you know, Facebook and so forth, and people say, it's the pay, it's the pay, that's where everybody's leaving, it's the pay. Yeah, I mean, that's probably true. But I think we can sort of go ahead and, like, maybe move the conversation along a little bit, okay? We acknowledge that that's an issue. Of course, everybody needs to be paid for the work that they do fairly and, and, and competitively, okay? And then we sort of need to just sort of check that, got it, yep, pay sucks, and then figure out how we're actually going to fix that, how we're actually going to address that. And at that point, I think the conversation tends to become a little bit circular logic, right? Well, we can't improve pay because of our reimbursement model, so pay is always going to be terrible, uh, and round and round we go. 
And so one of the things we're going to talk about a little bit later this morning is, I think, how we can maybe start to pull out of that conversation as well. Now, the interesting thing about this is that, you know, when you look at economics and you look at sociology, uh, it's really not actually pay that is really what recruits and retains people necessarily. And so the Easterlin paradox was uh, something uh, coined by uh, Richard Easterlin, an economist, in 1974. And basically what he found, and this has been validated several times, is that at any given point in somebody's life or career, pay is important to them. If I ask you sitting here today, do you get paid enough for the work that you do, most people would probably say no, and most people would probably feel that their life would be better if they made more money. There's actually quite a bit of research that that is in fact true. Not that money can buy happiness, but that money can buy pretty much everything that you need to live a healthy, vibrant life, right? Healthcare, food, uh, the ability to travel to see loved ones, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? And I think everybody, again, kind of just understands that on a pretty intuitive level. But what the Easterland Paradox says is that when you then kind of look back over the course of somebody's life, it's not the money that really, you know, helped them thrive it's educational attainment. It's the ability to avoid the unexamined life. It's the ability to live a life of meaning. It's the ability to unlock doors that educational credentials open in our society. And that is the way that our society is structured, whether we like it or not. How many people have seen the comments, or maybe you've made the comment yourself, well, a degree is just a piece of paper. Degree doesn't mean that you're a better paramedic. Your patient never asked to see your diploma, your college diploma, in the back of the ambulance. Yeah, those statements may all be true. Nevertheless, you still have to have a degree to get certain kinds of jobs. You sort of have to have a degree in the healthcare realm to really be able to advance. Now, this presentation this morning is not really about degree standards for paramedics. That's a part of what we're going to cover, but that's not really what this presentation is about. But we need to acknowledge that it is education. It is formal education, is what the Easterland Paradox really finds, that helps people move through life in a way that helps them thrive. And what this basically all comes down to is this guy. Hopefully everybody recognizes this, Maslow's hierarchy, a foundational you know, underpinning of sociology and, and psychology and economics. This is basically there's kind of two ways of looking at uh, Maslow's hierarchy uh, as Maslow himself described. The one that everybody's most familiar with is that if the basic needs at the, at the level that, that you're looking at are not met, you have a really hard time getting to the next level. If you're not secure in your water, your food, your shelter, your sleep, um, it's very difficult to sort of level up into being able to uh, progress all the way up to having self-esteem and self-actualization where you're sort of the true you know, master of your own fate and all that kind of stuff. And that's how this typically gets taught. And I would um, argue that most EMS providers are somewhere in this area on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I think everybody in here has worked as an EMS provider at some point in some extent, you know, to some extent in some sort of an agency. Does it sound familiar to you that at various times you weren't totally feeling secure in uh, sleep or your ability to afford rent? Or were you eating healthy foods all the time, working two different jobs on 24-48 schedules, living in an ambulance? Were you in a healthy relationship, not to get weird suddenly this morning, but uh, where your um, opportunities for reproduction were uh, being met? Yeah, 
a lot of times, I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe the opportunities were there, but uh, you didn't necessarily feel real good about, uh, about those opportunities, right? <laughs> All right. How about safety needs? Broken ambulances? Ambulances don't start half the time. Ambulances where the seatbelts don't click. Being expected to respond to calls for violence where you're not given appropriate PPE. Does your agency have a rescue task force model? Or are they just kind of putting their head in the sand about that kind of response? And then during the pandemic, did you have enough PPE? Right? Did you feel safe running the COVID calls? Okay, so that's kind of the traditional framework of um, Maslow's hierarchy. I think that there certainly are some individuals in EMS who are at a higher level of, of the hierarchy, but as a profession, we're kind of hovering, I think, uh, around those really low, low rungs. The other way of understanding Maslow's hierarchy, Maslow described those uh, lower levels as growth needs. And so another way of understanding Maslow's hierarchy is that when these are not met, people strive to meet them. This is part of what he theorized was uh, stimulating people to grow and to kind of move out of whatever place that they were in in their lives to some other kind of a place. So I think we can understand this in two ways. The first way that people are going to have a hard time kind of leveling up when their basic needs are not met, I think that helps us explain why many EMS agencies struggle to have progressive protocols, to have healthy and vibrant workplace environments, to really kind of uh, attract and recruit and retain the kinds of people that they really are looking for and that we need, because you get hired, you get thrown to the wolves, and you don't feel safe, you don't feel secure, and it's very difficult for you to focus on things like, um, you know, helping to develop policies and procedures and programs and trying to address all the different needs of your community through the EMS system, that kind of stuff. And then the second way of understanding is just that this is also why people leave. This is why they feel attracted to go to nursing school or to go to PA school because they, you know, they perceive, uh, I think, quite obviously that those are ways to better meet their foundational needs. So we just need to acknowledge that formal education is a good thing. It doesn't solve all the problems. Having a degree doesn't make you a better paramedic. It doesn't make you smarter. I am not better than you because I have a master's degree and maybe you don't. You're not better than me because you have a doctorate and I haven't gotten mine yet. That's not what this says. But reams and reams and reams of research from all different sectors of social sciences have basically proven everything you see on the screen, which again, I should probably read for the benefit of podcast listeners, greater employment stability, greater resilience to the psychological winds that seem to buffet us uh, in EMS, improved health and wellness, lower rates of injury, greater career longevity, and on and on and on and on. Uh, now, it is worth pointing out real quick that this actually tends to take a nosedive at the doctorate level. Some people sitting in the audience right now uh, could probably uh, tell you all about that when we have drinks later on this evening. Scott Lancaster's LinkedIn posts are the reason I'm not getting a PhD. <laughs> Sorry about that, uh, but uh, it's, it was rough. It was rough. Was it not for a little while there? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No. Um, but actually, that is kind of interesting that this tracks up and up and up from high school to associate's degree to bachelor's degree. 
to specializations in you know that postgraduate level, and then um, a lot a lot of research finds that many people who get doctorates are miserable. <laughs> so that's uh, worth kind of keeping in mind here. Okay, but as a general statement, as a general trend in the research. Higher education helps us kind of level up in the Maslow's hierarchy. So this is its own kind of a paradox. On the one hand, it helps us, it would help our workforce, it would help our agencies. If you are an agency administrator, and there are some people in this room who I know, looking out across and seeing some familiar faces, you're an EMS educator because you're a training officer, uh, but you're an agency administrator. You are running a fire department, you're running an EMS agency in some respect, and you are probably having a hard time recruiting and retaining people. And if we embrace this concept that education's a good thing and that more of our workforce than currently does should have formal degrees, um, this is going to help you in your ability to have the kind of agency, have the kind of workplace that you want to have and attract the kind of recruits and, and prospective employees you want to have. It's going to also probably mean that people are going to be less likely to leave you and leave EMS in general. But the key here is that people have to feel like there is a way to use their degree in EMS. And that's really the thesis statement of the presentation this morning, is that we don't have that right now. There's a couple of states that require you to get an associate's degree to be a paramedic, but really on the whole, there is not really, across our industry, real correspondence between degree attainment and scope of practice, degree attainment and opportunities, degree attainment and really anything meaningful coming from that in EMS. It exists in pockets. Certain agencies, you know, do reward those things, but we're talking this morning about our industry as a whole. And I think you would agree that our industry as a whole simply does not seem to value formal educational attainment. Basically, I think what we know is that this is why people are leaving EMS. They're leaving EMS for opportunities to thrive. They believe that they can find these opportunities elsewhere. Now, where do paramedics come from? Paramedics generally come from EMTs, right? There is a couple of opportunities here and there around the country to basically jump right into paramedic training without any prior familiarization with EMS. We offer that opportunity at Eastern Kentucky University. You can come in and enroll in our program as a basically, uh, you know, just any, any, any old person can enroll, and we will put you through EMT training. But nevertheless, you still have to complete EMT training before you move on to our paramedic studies. And we do require, you know, ride time and uh, clinical experiences and a BLS internship at the EMT level before you can apply to our paramedic sequence. Okay, so EMTs get out there and they work and they ride with paramedics and they see how fragmented our system is. They see the moral injury. They see the misaligned systems. They see the inefficiencies. They see the archaic practices. They see a lot of people begrudging formal education. They hear a lot of people saying it's not worth it to become a paramedic. You should just go to nursing school. You should just go to PA school. You should pick another line of work. EMTs get out there and they see people just running the same calls over and over and over again, doing the same you know, nursing home IFT today that they were doing 10 years ago, and on and on and on it goes. We're stagnating. We're stagnating as a profession. And there's a lot of talk about how to become a little bit more diversified and have new opportunities and get into community paramedicine and this, that, and the other. Um, but we haven't seemed to figure out how to actually make those things financially sustainable and workable. 
And of course, the uh, other elephants in the room today are accreditation and national registry. So lately, there's this big push, I don't know if you've heard about this, to maybe make COA accreditation optional for paramedic programs. Quite frankly, I do think COA has work to do in better demonstrating their value and improving their processes and their operations. I have a lot of colleagues who are very involved with COA accreditation. My colleague Bill Young is sitting right in front of me, who I think extraordinarily highly of. And if you know Bill Young, I think you would agree with me. Very involved in COA as a site visitor uh, and is our expert at EKU on accreditation standards. And so I say that with no particular animosity towards COA or any of the people who are doing the hard work every day of maintaining that accreditation standard. There is a conversation that needs to be had not about abandoning accreditation, but improving the accreditation process. And then the National Registry. Yes, the National Registry is challenging. That is a challenging test. And if you are still teaching your students based on the National Registry exam of 15 years ago, based on basically a DOT standard curriculum kind of a worldview, you're behind the times. The exam is not built that way anymore. Each question does have one right answer. Each question can be sourced to a industry reference that is accessible to anybody. As a, a, an item writer and a master pool reviewer, I literally had to sit in a room like a prisoner and find a source in a commonly accepted text or publication or something to defend every single correct answer that I suggested for questions. Right? It had to be found in AHA ECC guidelines or Nancy Caroline, or Limmer, or something like that, right? It does require a good knowledge of pathophysiology. It requires the ability to assimilate lots of information. It requires critical thinking. It requires the ability to answer questions like, which of these patients is the sickest? Which of these patients needs to be transported first? If you're still teaching your students just to memorize a bunch of facts and figures, you're not preparing them for the modern National Registry exam. So maybe another couple of bears poked here. We do not need to abandon accreditation. We just need to maybe improve some aspects of the accreditation process. The registry test is challenging, and I'm sorry if that requires you to need to change some of your educational practices. But it's a pretty good test. really is a pretty good test. None of the surveys of people, when they asked about why they were leaving, indicated that they're leaving because paramedic programs were too difficult because they had to maintain accreditation. Nobody indicated that the National Registry test was too hard or that that was, none of that shows up in any of these surveys. And honestly, it doesn't even really seem to show up when you just talk to people anecdotally. When we just talk to our peers, why are you thinking about getting out of EMS? People say the same kind of stuff. I don't get paid enough. The working conditions kind of suck. I don't have the opportunities that I want. I've heard very, very few people say, you know, honestly, looking back on things, if it weren't for the fact that uh, my, uh, you know, registry test, uh, you know, was just a little bit too hard, you know, I think I might have stayed in this profession. Like, nobody says that. Nobody says, well, to be honest with you, my paramedic program was accredited, so uh, I'm bailing. Like, that doesn't come up, right? So I don't understand this linkage that some people are trying to make between COA and National Registry being some sort of a choke point into entry in our profession or being some sort of explanation for why we have a recruitment and retention program. The COA accreditation standards are not that difficult. They're really not. 
they're also not that expensive. I've heard people claim that to start a paramedic program costs $20,000 in accreditation fees. That's not true. <laughs> That's just not true. It may cost you $20,000 in capital equipment or in personnel costs or something like that, but you need those things anyway, right? You need those things just to operate any paramedic program. That stuff is not, in my opinion, relevant to any of the problems we're facing today as a profession. And it's actually really important, as I'll get to a little bit later, to stick with those things. We need to stick with standardized paramedic education. That's nationally accredited. We need to stick with a nationally standardized, externally validated, psychometrically valid exam, or else most of what I'm about to propose is not going to happen. Right? This is what we need to focus on. It's not COA, it's not national registry, it's not a lot of these other things, it's this. Ambulance work is not attractive to a lot of people. I love EMS. I got started in it essentially when I was 13 years old, volunteering at the National EMS Memorial Foundation Museum, and I've stuck with it ever since, and I still work on an ambulance. I still work PRN for Powell County Ambulance, and I don't find ambulance work attractive, right? It's a grind. I find certain patient interactions attractive and, and exciting and fulfilling. I find certain kinds of calls and certain aspects of it. I like the camaraderie. I, I like what it demands of me. I like that every call that I go on, I have to essentially be the best version of myself. The most important call of your career is the one that you're on. I like that. I like what EMS requires of me. And I don't like really riding around on ambulance. It's not a healthy atmosphere. It's not really very vibrant. It's a lot of mother may I kinds of patient care, despite the fact that I have been an EMS provider for more than 20 years, and I'm fairly well educated, <laughs> and I'm asked to teach people how to do all these procedures and all these interventions and all these assessments, and I still feel like I have my hands tied in the things that I'm allowed to do on the ambulance, right? It's that kind of stuff that is making it difficult to rec uh, recruit and attract and retain paramedics. So what we really need to be focused on here is creating opportunities. We need to be focused here on making the EMS workforce uh, and working conditions very, uh, very attractive. So I think part of what is going on here is just that there's tension within our profession about how to do that based on these two uh, models or frameworks of EMS, maybe worldviews of EMS, that to a certain extent, some people feel are competing with one another. This is a broad stroke slide for sure. I'm definitely painting with a broad brush here. But I think broadly speaking, there's kind of these two frameworks here. The first one is this public safety framework VMS. So you get your paramedic certification just like you would get your rope tech and hazmat tech and confined space and firefighter, uh, you know, IFSAC 1 and 2 cert. It's just all bundled in to your academy basically. And so it's kind of this, you know, add-on to all those other things. It's built around this concept of being a technician. Here's your nine-month paramedic course. Here's your protocol book. They call, we haul, on to the next one. And a lot of people go through this kind of training because they have to, not because they're necessarily passionate about it, but because it's expected to get the job as the firefighter paramedic or to get the job in the first place. And, and I think we all know that. And then that same camp, I think, tends to be the one who says, you know, look, all this stuff about mobile integrated healthcare and preventive health and all this sort of stuff, that's all great, but it's mission creep. This is designed, this model, this system was built for emergency care. 
is built for your dying, <laughs> and we're going to keep you from dying, hopefully until you get to the hospital, and that's it. And those other things are for other people, other disciplines in healthcare, other roles. Then we have the healthcare worldview, and this is where people say, no, this really should be a real health profession. This should be a singular focus in my occupation. I want to be a fully formed healthcare provider held to the same standards and with the same esteem and the same opportunities as nurses and respiratory therapists and everybody else out there who we, who we deal with. And we want to be able to meet all of the community's pre-hospital healthcare needs. So one of the things that I'm here to tell you this morning is that I was wrong in a lot of the positions that I think I used to have that some of you may have seen me take in forums like this at previous conferences and social media conversations and EMS uh, Board of EMS committee meetings here in Kentucky, um, quite frankly, I used to be kind of contemptuous of the public safety framework crowd. And I've really come around to the idea that there's room for both kinds of people and more kinds of people in EMS. I used to believe, up until fairly recently, to be honest with you, that every paramedic needed to have a degree. You should simply get an associate's degree. You should have to have an associate's degree to be a paramedic. And I would rant and rave about how this is easy because every co-ay accredited paramedic program, which is all paramedic programs essentially, right? Because you have to, if nothing changes, you have to graduate from a co-ay accredited program to take registry in the first place in 48 states, right? And so basically every graduate coming out of every co-ay accredited paramedic program has an opportunity to claim those credits we have a very fine um, uh, commercial paramedic program in Lexington that uh, on their website, you know, I happen to know, says you can claim 45 credits out of basically the 60, right, required to get an associate's degree uh, from their sponsoring uh, university. And so I was, you know, all about just get there. Let's just get there. Let's just figure out how to pay for those, you know, basically like 15 credits and get everybody an associate's degree. And we're just really foolish for not doing it. And I've really started to kind of come around to the idea that that is just not the case. Not every paramedic needs to have a degree, but there is a certain kind of paramedic that must have a degree if we're going to find our way out of this malaise that we're in right now. Now, I should point out real quick that people actually, again, do want education. I mentioned this earlier in the presentation. Here's some more statistics that are interesting. Fitch, an associate's industry study in 2019, Paramedics themselves, when surveyed, said that they, 65% uh, said that they believe the minimum education for a paramedic should be an associate's degree. EMTs themselves said at a rate of 55%, right, a majority of EMTs said that they thought uh, it should be an associate's degree. Why do we sometimes seem to struggle for the esteem of other people in the healthcare community? Well, maybe it's because <laughs> a vast majority of those people uh, seem to believe that we should have a minimum associate's degree, probably because they had to jump through that hoop as well. So, you know, I hear this question all the time, oh, David, why should a paramedic have to take English literature to be a paramedic? You know, quite frankly, one of the answers to that question is just that, well, the nurse had to, the physician had to, the dental hygienist had to, the athletic trainer had to, these days, the rad techs had to, okay? So uh, we're not paying our dues in healthcare like pretty much everybody else is. And so maybe, maybe that's part of the reason we don't always get uh, held in the same regard. Okay, so in reality, though, there's room for everybody. There's room in EMS under maybe a different kind of a consensus framework for technician paramedics and paramedics with degrees all the way up through advanced education. 
And this is actually not new. This is not some sort of you know, like genius uh, uh, worldview that I came up with over a couple of glasses of bourbon. This is from the NHTSA website. This graphic has been up there like, for a long time. Every time I go there to re-download the EMS education guidelines and all that kind of stuff, this thing's there. Right? EMS is all of these things. EMS is public safety. EMS is people you know, just uh, turning and burning to 911 calls who maybe don't need to have an expanded scope or an expanded skill set or know really anything about social determinants of health or public, public health epidemiology or any of these things that we talk about in degrees. But it's also healthcare. It's also public health. Um, I think sometimes, just like we spend a lot of time sort of stuck on the salary and compensation thing, not that it's not important, but again, it's sort of like implied that that's an important thing. We seem to get stuck on, is EMS public safety or is it public health? You know, or is it public safety or is it health care? Uh, it's, it's all of it, right? And we should just kind of acknowledge that, that EMS is a unique discipline that borrows from many other fields, and we call that EMS. Some people want to call it paramedicine, which I'm fine with too. Right? But the point is there's room for everybody. Okay, so what is our escape fire? Now, maybe you kind of know where I'm going with this. It's these folks. Nursing has lit the escape fire for us. Now, this is also not a presentation about how we should just be like nursing. Maybe when I, uh, this image popped up, some of you rolled your eyes and said, yeah, 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 I get it. You know, we should have to have the associate's degree just like the nurses and all that kind of stuff. That's not really what I'm talking about here. Right? But it is worth reviewing a little bit of the history of nursing because they have lit the escape fire for us. They're already in the black, and we just have to join them there. And this is kind of what it's looked like over the years. The first bachelors of nursing programs were started in the early 1900s. This is not like a modern invention. BSN programs didn't suddenly start to crop up in like the 70s or 80s. They started in the early 1900s. The first BSN program was in 1909 at the University of Minnesota. Nursing master's programs started in the 1950s. It was in the 60s and 70s that you saw the explosion of ADM programs because the nursing profession got together and said, what is the best way to build a vibrant career pathway for the people we want in our workforce? How do we give people the opportunities that they want um, to not just basically be these kind of maybe glorified you know, candy stripers or that's how they were being treated by the medical establishment? So they said pretty early on, right, we need to have real pathways to give people the opportunities that they want and we want them to have. Now, in the 1990s, as we have now, there were nursing shortages, but they didn't retreat from this campaign. They didn't get spooked and say, oh, we have a nursing shortage because it's too hard to become a nurse because you have to get a degree, so let's get rid of degree programs. That is not what they said. They focused on making nursing more attractive. They focused on building clinical ladders. They focused on concepts like magnet hospitals. They focused on making the field of nursing an attractive place to be. And then one of the big things that happened was in 1997, nurse practitioners got included in uh, federal legislation that allowed them to become actual practitioners. So opportunities to really practice at a somewhat autonomous level, in some states almost entirely autonomous. Now, there are some physicians in the audience uh, today, so everybody just kind of be cool about the nurse practitioners and the autonomy and everything like that. 
This has been pretty important in, in, in attracting a lot of people to the profession. These days, we have doctor of nursing practice. Anybody know where the first DNP program in the United States got started? I'll toss you a lifesaver or something. Uh, University of Kentucky, uh, right here in Kentucky in Lexington, 2001, the first DNP program. Then in 2008, a consensus model for advanced practice registered nurses. Take some mental notes on these uh, bullet points here on the slide because they're going to come up later. And then in 2010, we had this Institute of Medicine report on the future of nursing. People got together and said, really, how do we make this sustainable? Uh, how do we make this uh, something where we, we're all on the same page about where we're going with this? And then, actually, it was only in 2012 that there was uh, more BSNs and ADNs. Okay? And I think that's a really important point because look at those numbers. They're not actually really that high. Despite having DNP programs and nurse practitioner opportunities, and despite all these programs getting started way back in the early 1900s, you know, most of the nursing workforce still has either an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree. And the bachelor's degree numbers really only edge out the associates uh, just a little bit. And so the point here is that this takes time. This is about having a vision. This is about a steady course. This is about not getting you know, distracted by naysayers and by people who don't support the vision. It's about uh, getting to the black. This is kind of what nursing looks like. You know, This is just my kind of interpretation of these different levels of you know, uh, nursing credentials. If you are a nurse in the audience today, you might maybe take uh, exception with this or take a different view of this. But, but this is kind of how I think many of us understand these credentials to be. We forget about the LPN. In EMS, when we start talking about comparing ourselves to nursing and we say, you know, basically to be a nurse, you have to get an associate's degree. Well, that's not true, is it? Right? Licensed practical nurse or licensed vocational nurse in some states does not require a degree. It's a certificate program. It's uh, a few months long, typically about a year, and you too can become a nurse by going through that program. Then we have the degreed levels of nursing that kind of correspond with being a registered nurse. But I was one of these guys, too. I used to say, look at nursing. Look at nursing. You know, you have to be, you got to go to college to become a nurse. So all these people who are jumping ship from EMS to say, um, I, um, I think degrees are stupid for paramedics. That doesn't make any sense. I'm just going to go to nursing school instead. That was always a little bit odd to me. Right? It's like, I don't think a degree is important to do my job. But I think uh, I'm going to go ahead and go through a degree program to get this other job. I always found that kind of odd, but I was also wrong in my approach to this. I was one of the people who said, uh, you got to go to uh, college to become a nurse, so why don't we just do that at EMS? Uh, and then I kind of realized that that's not really true. There is a technician level of nurse. And so this is something that we can emulate, right? Like, where is our clinical ladder? Where is our ability to progress from basically a technician level all the way up through and advanced practice. And so here is what I am proposing this morning for EMS. This is what I think we need to do on a national level. We need to have credentials that basically reflect what the nurses have long since discovered. We need to have a pathway, if you want to pursue it, to go from being a technician paramedic all the way up to a paramedic practitioner. Somebody who possesses what I'm going to call and would propose a standardized credential, Master of Science in Paramedicine. Now, this exists in lots of other countries. The Commonwealth countries, you know, uh, Britain, Australia, they, they have this already. There's only one of these programs that I know of in the United States uh, right now, and that's Creighton University, but it's an EMS administration degree. 
it's a master of science in the uh, administration of pair medicine uh, or the delivery of pair medicine. It's not a clinical master's degree. We need clinical master's degrees. We need the ability to operate at this practitioner level. And so what I'm really proposing here is this, right? Uh, what I mean by a paramedic practitioner is a paramedic who possesses a clinical master's degree in the specialty of pre-hospital medicine, and this is the thing, we need a scope of practice to match it. I have a master of science degree. It's meaningless within the framework of EMS. It's how I got my job at EKU as a professor. It's opened up many other doors for me professionally. I have a job with the federal government where it's been you know, recognized for promotion, all that kind of stuff, but on the ambulance, it matters not that I have a master's degree. I have the same glitter patch on my shoulder as the guy who went through a nine-month paramedic program. And that is really problematic because that's the thing that motivates me and motivates a lot of other people in EMS to start wondering, do I really want to stay here? Why am I staying in a profession where no matter how hard I work and how many educational credentials I get, my scope doesn't change, my abilities don't really increase in the back of the ambulance that much, the opportunities in the profession don't really seem to expand for me. My master's degree is not rewarded on the streets. It's rewarded in the classroom, it's rewarded in other places, but it's not rewarded in the thing that I love to do the most. I'm not always happy about the ambulance environment, but I love being a paramedic. I love treating patients. I would like for my credentials to be rewarded and to be honored and to be reflected. We need to build this. And this has to happen, though, on a state-by-state -state basis. We'll kind of get back to that here in just a, a couple of minutes, all right? Now, much love to Austin Travis County EMS. They are a you know, fantastic EMS system that really sets the pace for probably the rest of the country. But I do take a little bit of exception to what they call their paramedic practitioner. So if you're not familiar with this, they have a role called paramedic practitioner. And they're actually, I think, still hiring for one right now, still looking. And um, basically what it requires is that you have credentials like PAC uh, in addition to being a paramedic. And, you know, I've talked with people who've built that, that program, and I understand why they built it this way. It's because what I'm advocating for, a true paramedic practitioner, doesn't exist. It exists nowhere in the United States. There is no state, and there really are no training programs for a paramedic practitioner. So what else are you going to do if you want to try to achieve what I'm talking about this morning than hire a PA who's also a paramedic? And then how many people saw the position statement, I think from what was it, the uh, Association of Emergency uh, APRNs, that they would like to have a role in the field? I think that's fine. I don't think we need to necessarily exclude people from you know, paramedicine. But wouldn't it be nice if you didn't have to train into a whole other health profession to do the things that you want to do in EMS? Wouldn't it be really nice if uh, you could become, if you wanted to, an advanced practice paramedic or a paramedic practitioner with a degree that prepared you for that role specifically within this profession that we all love and we've dedicated our lives and our careers to. If I wanted to be a PA, I wouldn't be on stage right now. I'd be in PA school. But I want to be a paramedic. And I want to do paramedic stuff, and I want to be able to grow in that role and in that, in that field. Under this model that I'm proposing, this is basically kind of what it would look like, right? It makes room for the technician paramedic. 
And I think a lot of the stalemate or a lot of the tension around the degree debate has been uh, around this concept that you know some of us have been saying, you got to get a degree to be a paramedic. We got to do. It. We got to have a degree standard. And that is alienating a lot of people, rightly or wrongly, just don't agree with that and don't believe in that. And again, I used to be one of these people who was kind of throwing stones or maybe tomatoes uh, at those people. But there is room. Just like in nursing, they have an LPN. They have a role for a technician nurse. There is a role in EMS for technician paramedics. If you're a big city EMS agency like Louisville that is getting slammed by 911 calls every second of the day, the fact of the matter is, yes, you do actually need to just be able to crank out paramedics. <laughs> like, you really do. That's a real need. Yeah, we can talk about using EMTs more, using advanced EMTs, you know, that kind of stuff, but we do have to be able to produce paramedics, and not every single practice setting really probably needs the full degree preparation to be able to do good work, safe work for patients. But where do you need that education? You need it to be able to do things like safe refusals. Hopefully you're familiar with the research that says that unfortunately, Traditional paramedic education, basically adhering, for the most part, just to the National EMS Instructional Guidelines, uh, really does not prepare paramedics to do safe refusals. There's huge divergence between uh, when it's studied and when you know, it's looked at retrospectively, what the paramedic thought was wrong with the patient and what was actually diagnosed in the emergency department. What the paramedic thought was a quote-unquote BS call and uh, what the doctor actually found in the patient. <laughs> There's a big gulf between those two things. So traditional paramedic education does not prepare us to do the things that we probably want to do. Okay, so again, not every paramedic needs to have a degree, in my opinion. But some roles of paramedic must have them. Now, why must they have them? Well, this gets into what the word practitioner actually means. There's a definition for this. The federal government has definitions for things like clinician, allied health professional, and a lot of the world of healthcare is built around those definitions. One of the reasons we tend to get excluded from funding opportunities is that those funding opportunities are all built around this concept that the federal government has of what an allied health professional is. And the definition of allied health professional in the Public, Servi uh, Public Health Service Act of 1946 says graduation from an accredited college or university with a certificate or a degree. So when HRSA, Health Resources Services Administration, and other federal entities like that make a bunch of money available for rural healthcare education and preparation and grants and loans to go to school and pay for these degrees, they give it to the allied health professionals. And we're not that. Because as a profession, becoming a paramedic does not require a degree. I mean, you know, maybe it does in Oregon and Kansas, but in general, being a paramedic doesn't require a degree. So we don't qualify. We're left out of those sorts of opportunities. All right, and the same thing is true being a practitioner. You can't just call yourself a practitioner. The federal government has a structure, basically, for what a practitioner actually is. And one helpful place to look at this, just to sort of set the stage here, is in the fine print of the ET3 model. Now, this was kind of a problematic program. It was very difficult for people to apply uh, for ET3. But uh, nevertheless, you know, it existed as an opportunity to be reimbursed for things other than just transport. And when you look at whether or not uh, we could do this on our own, the answer was no. ET3 required that we basically had to share the revenue with a practitioner. 
We had to have a practitioner essentially supervising the program. If not a physician, practitioners. And those practitioners are people like nurse practitioners and PAs. And so this is CMS talking to us right now. This is right there on the CMS uh, Centers for Medicaid Services ET3 website. Unless also licensed as a practitioner, paramedics and EMTs, not eligible. They don't meet the standard of a qualified healthcare practitioner under this model. And that is because there is no category of paramedic really, you know, in a salient way that requires a degree and has a corresponding scope of practice. So when you look in, um, the, again, the Public Health Act, Title 42, this is the list of practitioners. What do all these people have in common? Advanced degrees. They all had to go to graduate school. Everybody on this list had to go to graduate school. That's basically what the federal government says a practitioner is. Now, to actually be a practitioner under Medicare regulations, you have to be on this list. Right? We have to get added to the list. But there's no way we get added to the list taking a nine-month certification and comparing it against somebody who went to graduate school. There's no way that we can stack up a certificate paramedic course against a master's degree to be considered a practitioner and get added to this list. When you go to HRSA, Health Resources Services Administration, these are the people that are funding most of the development of the rural EMS systems and, and underserved EMS agencies and who are making all this money available to start nursing programs in underserved areas. We have that need in EMS, don't we? Right? We need more paramedic programs in more places. This is their list of uh, practitioners, and I actually stopped at just these because I couldn't fit all the ones that they list on the screen. I didn't want to do three slides on just what HRSA calls a practitioner but they all have to go to college. I mean, uh, chiropractor. Many in this audience would argue that chiropractic is not legitimate healthcare. Uh, I know, I agree with you. Rock, rock on, man. Yep, I, uh, I rely very heavily on a nice thoracic mobilization to feel good, so you're, you're right. But you would agree many people would argue <laughs> that uh, chiropractic is not healthcare. But they're on the list, right? Because yes, in fact, they are doctors. A chiropractor yeah, is a doctor of chiropractic. Um, they're not a physician. They are a doctor. They went to graduate school. They have a terminal graduate degree. They get to be a practitioner, too. Um, when we go back to um, CMS regulations, this is um, the list of practitioners from the CMS uh, manual, specifically publication 100-8, Medicare Program Integrity. This is who Medicare considers to be practitioners. Again, these are all people who went to graduate school. Again, I'm saying here not every paramedic needs a degree. We do not have to require every single paramedic. You don't have to complete an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree to be able to be an NRP, to be able to be a paramedic. I no longer believe that that is necessary or even wise. But if we're going to sort of pull out of this tailspin that we're in, we need to have some level of paramedic who is a practitioner, who uh, has an advanced degree and a corresponding scope of practice. Because again, we are not meeting the definition of what the federal government uh, says as a practitioner, and this is where this really gets into funding, okay? Now before we get into talking about the funding here and how to make this financially sustainable, this is everything worth, worth remembering. This is in the Social Security Act. The Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services can designate practitioners kind of at their discretion. If we conform to the existing requirements of practitioners, it doesn't take necessarily an act of Congress. 
It takes the decision of a bureaucrat to add us to that list. Now, we may in fact have to you know, do quite a bit of work to uh, modify all sorts of different CMS regulations and potentially it does take an act of Congress in certain aspects of healthcare finance and delivery in the United States. But at a starting point, all it really takes is convincing the secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services that we would meet the same qualifications as practitioner, and then we get to be included on that list. This is the truth. See, all these people saying, you know, we just need to be paid more. We need to be paid more for reimbursement. We need to talk to our congresspeople about raising ambulance reimbursement. Nobody is going to just give us more money just because they feel bad for us, all right? just because we whine about enough. Everybody's always asking for more money. Everybody thinks that their job is the most important one. Everybody thinks that they need to be reimbursed at a greater level for all of their healthcare services. All right? And we kind of know how we're paid right now. I think everybody in the room is familiar with this. This is uh, glossing over a few things, but this is the broad strokes, right? It's a fairly simple formula based on loaded mileage. And we're not getting paid for the refusals. We're not getting paid for any of the real specific services that we do. Yes, we arguably get paid more if we you know, intubate somebody and give them a bunch of medications or shock them. But uh, you know, this is not a lot of differentiation between these different levels of service. And we know that it's not really keeping up with the expenses. Well, this is how practitioners get paid. They have these different elements of what it's referred to as the relative value units that relate to the work that they're actually doing to treat the patient, the malpractice expenses, the expenses of actually running their practices, keeping the lights on, employing medical billers and coders, all that kind of stuff, those practice expenses. And there's a formula for what those things are actually kind of worth. And the GPCI is the uh, geographic practice cost index. So it's indexed to how expensive is it to do business in the area that you're actually doing business in. It's more expensive to run a clinic in one area than the other. So if you live in an, or work in an expensive area, you get paid a little bit more for delivering that service. And then there's also some modifiers for like super rural. So if you're willing to operate a clinic in a really rural part of uh, America that's underserved, you get a little modifier for doing that as well. And then there's a conversion factor, and this is sort of based on uh, an average of how much everybody is billing across the country, how much it's costing, on average, every doctor, every nurse practitioner, every PA, every audiologist to deliver those particular services, and the federal government tweaks that conversion factor a little bit from time to time every year uh, based on that sort of average. We get paid based on loaded miles and basically how many IVs did I put in, and it still gets capped. Um, practitioners get paid for the actual cost of what it really takes to deliver the care, more so than we do in EMS. So the framework for how to make EMS financially sustainable, more so than it is today, is already there for us. It's already been built. Um, we just need to hop into it. And if you're familiar with all the different ICD-10 codes, we're already using that in EMS um, on the back end when we get billed. What we don't really use are the CPT codes, the actual individual procedures, many of which you'd recognize that paramedics are doing every day, just in this example, things to actually be billed for specifically. And this list is extensive. It's hundreds, if not thousands, of different individual procedures that we could potentially be billing for. The model is already built for us. We just have to conform to the requirements. 
this is all nice in theory. We actually have to get there, <laughs> which is the hard part. We have to get into the black and go through the escape fire. So wrapping up uh, my presentation this morning, this is how I propose that we do this. The first thing is we need to value the technicians and the clinicians alike. We need to kind of get over this. You have to have a degree. There's no room for the technician. These crash courses are stupid and a waste of time. No, they're not. They're important. I'm a certificate paramedic. I went through a certificate paramedic training program in the bingo hall of a volunteer fire department. And I think I got a pretty good education and I think I provided pretty good care. And I think that that's true. But we also need to acknowledge that higher education does have an actual value. It does have an actual role. And so we need to sort of get over this concept of who's better. I am not a better paramedic because I have a master's degree. This is really what we're talking about here. It's not necessarily about who's the better paramedic. It's about sustaining our profession. It's about keeping people in the profession. It's about attracting people to the profession. It's about financially making this all sustainable as a service to the public. And once we solve that problem, then we can start to look at quality measures. It doesn't really matter the quality of the care that we're not providing because we don't have enough paramedics, right? So let's solve these problems first. All right, so this is what I'm saying. Right? We need to really focus on making this all sustainable. And we need to focus on building this pathway. So again, right now, uh, and I hope, I hope this does not change. I hope the National Registry does not give in to the people calling for alternatives to COA accreditation. Because right now, every paramedic program in the country basically offers a pathway to their students to get college credits and get that associate's degree by virtue of accreditation, COA accreditation standards. It's one of the best things that COA requires is this uh, articulation agreement with uh, a sponsoring institution. And then we need more bachelor's degree programs for people who want them. And then, of course, we need to build these actual MSP programs. And this is going to be tough. No doubt about it, this is going to be tough, but we are talented people, and we can set our mind to, to doing this, and I think we can do this. And these are some of the things that the curriculum would need to have, and I think one of the biggest ones is these need to be no fooling around high-quality clinical education programs. Not diploma mills, probably not you know 100% online uh, types of degree programs. These need to be uh, in the medical model. This basically needs to look a lot like PA training but focused on the pre-hospital medicine arena. And that's the difference, I think, between that and a PA program. And then, of course, we need to basically create this, because remember the CMS language says that states would have to license paramedics as practitioners for them to be practitioners to be added to the list of practitioners by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. So we would need this to occur on a state-by-state -state basis. And so one of the biggest things I want to challenge you guys to do today is to be advocates for this to be aggressive advocates at the state level for modifying state regulations. Okay, and to wrap up, um, this is how nurse practitioners actually got this done uh, as they approached 1997 and their inclusion in the Omnibus uh, Budget Act of that year that got them practitioner status. The first is that they needed to recognize the potential to expand. And this was a study, a retrospective study done of how to actually achieve this. And this is what the study authors found. They recognized their own value. They didn't shy away from this. They embraced this. They got over this idea of, is this really kind of necessary? You know, do we need degrees? Do we not? And they said, yes, we are entitled to this. <laughs> we are the pre-hospital healthcare experts in EMS. We are entitled to this. Then they collected and presented the evidence that this would actually be a value. They made the case that this would improve service to communities, deliver better care, and that kind of stuff. And then 
they establish standards in education and testing. Let me just lean into the mic real quick. Standards in education and testing. Accreditation, nationally standardized, validate exams. We already have that. It's called KHEP and COHE and National Registry. We don't need to do anything different. We don't need to bring back state tests, and we don't need to get away from standardized accreditation. This was instrumental in proving to the rest of the healthcare establishment and to the federal government that these people are well-trained and well-educated. Then the other interesting thing that they did is they used their professional organizations to empower individuals. National organizations put together very detailed talking points to give to nurse practitioners and said, advocate for yourself with your patients. Invite legislators for ride-alongs, as the case may be in EMS, or invite them into your clinics, as was the case for the nurse practitioners, and use these talking points. They did surveys of all the national, uh, nurse practitioners, and they asked them, how many of you know politicians or know congressional staffers? And then they gave those people talking points to give to their friends who worked on Capitol Hill or who worked in state houses. We need to get organized along the same lines. EMS day on the Hill, not enough. Occasional visits to legislators is not enough. We need aggressive, very targeted, very sophisticated, very sustained advocacy if we're going to pull this off. And then the last one here speaks for itself. They stuck with it. Nurse practitioners existed for decades before they really got recognized. But again, they've already lit the fire. The black is already burned over. They've already done it. They've given us the model to follow, and we can do this too. And so the last thing I'll just say to you guys is that the other thing that Wag Dodge did that he kind of invented was the concept of dropping the tools. He told his guys, drop your pack, drop your hand tools. The things that they relied on, that they had been dependent on to keep them safe, he said, get rid of it. He told them to put their baggage down so that they could run into the black. We need to get over some of these sort of sacred cows that I've sort of been kicking down this morning. We need to get over the conversation about who's the better paramedic, get over the conversation about everybody has to have a degree, get over the conversation about we're not getting paid enough by uh, CMS for reimbursement, we need higher reimbursement for mileage. That stuff is, is not the future. We need to drop that baggage and we need to start having a new conversation about how to create a real clinical ladder and a real pathway to paramedic practitioner so that we have a vibrant career that attracts people, that retains people for the lifetime that they want to spend in EMS, uh, but we're not giving them opportunities to do right now. So thanks very much for your time this morning. Thanks. Good job. Thank you. Guys. Thank you. For years, I've encouraged paramedics to get degrees, but when I carefully listened to the stories of paramedics, I realized there are challenges that have to be addressed. Things like 2448s, childcare, mortgages. I'm pleased to share that I have an answer that matches what I know about the working paramedic who tells me they are ready to pursue a degree. Eastern Kentucky University offers a bachelor's in emergency medical care that is 100% online and allows college credit for existing state or national registry certifications. EKU is a nationally known program, and I trust them to take good care of Medic Mindset listeners who want to start their journey toward a degree. You can go to the show notes for this episode for a link, or simply use go.eku.edu backslash medic to get started. Welcome to Louisville. Uh, it is pronounced Louisville, not Louisville. If you said Louisville, get out, just leave, <laughs> leave the state entirely. 
Part of the reason we drank a lot of bourbon here is that it helps with the pronunciation of Louisville. 